coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. Well, okay. So I love seafood, fish and seafood. Okay. Uh, I mean, if you want to... If you want to know, like, what is the very, very best food you can get on this whole PE diet concept, it's basically fish and seafood. This is like a superfood. Uh, fish has in, insanely high satiety per calorie, uh, insanely high nutrient density, insanely high um, protein and minerals for the amount of uh, calories you're getting. So that's off the charts. So for me, it's like wild caught salmon and um wild caught seafood is just absolutely top of the sardines. ultimate foods pyramid yes you got it anything yeah. like that sardines it's awesome um uh, clams mussels oysters sardines any kind of wild caught fish and seafood amazing definitely top of the list for me Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. In this episode, I interviewed Dr. Ted Naiman. He's a board-certified family medicine physician and co-authored the PE Diet Book. His personal research and medical practice are focused on practical Im implementation of diet and exercise for health optimization. In this interview, we discussed a bunch of different topics. What is energy overload? The importance of protein, fiber, and minerals. Also, foods to eat to become satiated. We also dive into his PE diet book, the importance of minerals, his favorite sources of potassium, what's called carb periodization, and his daily diet and fasting routine. We also touch on exercise 2.0, which is a high intensity, high frequency body weight workout, and his thoughts regarding seafood, dairy, foods to avoid, and much, much more. So I really enjoyed my interview with Dr. Ted, and I know you will too. Thanks so much and enjoy the episode. All right, welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. And my guest today, Dr. Ted Naiman, uh, is a board-certified family medicine physician out of Seattle and also author of the PE Diet. And we're going to talk about a bunch of that stuff today. So welcome in, Dr. Ted. Hey, thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. Yeah, no, I appreciate you coming on the show. And uh, got a lot of topics we're going to talk about because really this podcast is all about helping individuals you know, get their bodies back to what it once was. And I noticed on your website, you've, you've made quite a transformation in your body. Uh, maybe uh, tell us the background behind that and how, how, um, and how you got into like health and wellness. Oh yeah. Okay, sure. So uh, basically uh, uh, my, my background was uh, mechanical engineering. I got an engineering degree and uh, I'm up here in Seattle and I couldn't really get a job because of uh, some Boeing layoffs at the time I graduated. So I just kind of on a whim decided to go to medical school. And uh, I was raised uh, Adventist. So I ended up going to Loma Linda University, which is this sort of famous vegetarian Mecca down in um, Southern California. And I, I got a medical degree from Loma Linda. <clears throat> and they have a big health focus there. Uh, diet, of course, it's all plant based and a little bit weird. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, I did come from this sort of uh, health centric background but I, I I noticed that like personally I never enjoyed really great health like I would I never had really good body composition and I never 
looked or felt any better than anyone else, even though on paper I was following this uh, vegetarian plant-based, you know, diet that's supposed to be the very healthiest. And I came from this Loma Linda blue zone where everybody supposedly lives the longest. Mm -hmm. And I think what I learned from that is like, oh, well, diet doesn't really matter. Like who cares? You know, diet's not that important. I'm, I'm looking around at all my fellow doctors from Loma Linda who are plant-based and I'm like, okay, I've got all these people here who go way out of their way to eat the healthiest diet, the plant-based diet, their doctors, nobody on earth has more knowledge about diet than these healthy plant-based doctors from Loma Linda. And none of them look particularly good. None of them, you know, their health isn't really any better than probably a lot of people. So I, I, I took away from that. Well, diet doesn't really matter. Hmm. And then I started my um, residency in family medicine in South Carolina, and uh, I was just, uh, it was just a deluge of obesity and diabetes and diabetes and metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance and just tons of really bad pathology. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> I was still thinking, well, you know, this is mostly genetic. These people just have, you know, all their parents are diabetic. You know, if both your parents are obese, there's an 80% chance you're going to be obese. If both your parents have type 2 diabetes, there's an 80% chance you're going to have type 2 diabetes. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> so I'm like, okay, diet doesn't matter. It's mostly genetics. We're supposed to feel sorry for these people and just give them more insulin. And then I, I had a patient who, and this was about uh, in the late 90s, this is like 20, mm. a little over 20 years ago. This patient came in and he had gone on like an Atkins diet and he he told me, wow, I lost 30 pounds and it, it felt really easy. I wasn't that hungry and it was effortless. And I stopped taking all my meds. And my blood pressure is fine and my blood sugar is fine. And this just blew me away. And I was like, wow, here's this guy who, you know, he wasn't raised plant-based. He didn't go to this ivory tower medical school with this, you know, academic plant-based diet message. He he just like read a $5 paperback from Dr. Atkins and yeah. managed to cure his type two diabetes. And this blew me away. I'm like, wow, you know, maybe, maybe I've got it all wrong. Maybe diet really is important. And maybe I just haven't cracked the code yet. Right. And uh, then I started really paying a lot of attention to all the patients I was seeing. And I'm like, wow, what really is the difference between the super health? people I see and the super unhealthy people I see. And I started asking a lot of questions. I'm like, you know, what's your diet? Like, you know, what are you, what are you eating? What did you, what's your exercise like? And I realized that <clears throat> a lot of these big differences that I was seeing in, in my patients in my clients were um, just diet and exercise. And, and it was really, really mind blowing to me. And so I started researching and I'm, you know, I'm old as hell. So this is back in the day where we didn't even have like, you know, you can just do a PubMed search. Like I actually had to look up articles. And so I, I just started researching everything I could find. And yeah. pretty much for the past 20 years, I've been researching anything I could find on diet and exercise and health and health outcomes. And I think that this has culminated into the, the book I wrote last year, The PE Diet, which is basically just everything I've gleaned from diet and exercise over the years, working with patients, trying things myself, um, researching the primary medical literature, 
And, uh, you know, that's, this is kind of where I've ended up and it's just been a really interesting journey. And, and I certainly don't feel like I've arrived yet. I, it's just a constant process of like learning and, you know, I I've changed over the years and iterated, but I'm, I'm constantly trying to basically do the best I can with the knowledge I have so far. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's great. First and foremost, I mean, we can learn a lot from our clients, um, I sort of had the same, uh, like same thing happened to me. A client of mine, uh, was like pre-diabetic and she started getting into fasting. And, um, that was something that, you know, I didn't know that much about. I mean, I know, you know, the major religions were, you know, using fasting for many years for a long time, but I was like, wow, you can actually do this to help, you know, help, help yourself. And she was pre-diabetic. All her numbers came back to, to normal and, um, I was like, wow, I got to learn about this. And I noticed some of your writings, um, I've actually read a lot. Um, you did a, a nice PDF of, uh, intermittent fasting. I noticed, um, I don't know how long ago you wrote that, but I noticed that on your website, is that something that you, um, you focus on with your clients as well, along with like, you know, obviously how to, how to eat correctly. Yeah. I mean, I, I love intermittent fasting, but for me, fasting is definitely on a U shaped curve where, I feel if people push it too far, then they're just super, super hungry and they eat all of this energy dense food afterwards mm -hmm. <clears throat> and gain. So I see that I see people who rely on fasting too much, just gaining and losing and gaining and losing the same five pounds over and over again. And so I don't like extended fasting. I don't like over leveraging fasting. But like a, a certain amount of fasting, I think is awesome. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it gets people in touch with hunger and fullness and it gets people less glucose dependent on, on ex exogenous carbohydrates. And you get really good at living off your own stored body fat kind of what you're supposed to. But there's definitely this sweet spot to it, I think, where you, you have to, it's a little different for everyone and you have to find out where that is. And it's... Um, you know, somewhere between one and 24 hours a day is probably averagey for most people with uh, highly variable, you know, results. And it kind of depends on the, the person and the way the rest of their diet is. But it's definitely a really good tool in the toolbox that everybody should be trying out at least a little bit. I think you're just leaving money on the table if you're not exploring that. I completely agree. I think, like you said, everyone's different. I mean, um, when I first started, I just simply move back breakfast an hour. And just like my goal was just to gradually push it back till about noon. And then, you know, once you get comfortable with that, you sort of see where you're at, you know, am I happy? Have I reached my health goals? Um, and, and then you can sort of adjust it from there. Uh, but I agree. It is a tool that everyone should utilize. And, um, uh, yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, I noticed that you talk, um, a lot about like energy overload, and I was curious, I wanted to sort of touch on that. Um, what, what, what would you say your definition of that is? Okay, so uh, all of these chronic degenerative diseases that we have <clears throat> that are related to hyperinsulinemia, you know, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, high insulin levels, these are all really caused by having too much energy in your body. You've literally tried to store too much energy. Now, humans store, you know, the vast majority of their energy over 99% is fat. So you really have too much fat in your right. body. I was gonna say, is that a nice way of saying you have too much fat energy overload, right? 
Yeah, you're just basically too fat. I'll just come out and say it. Yeah. But even someone who looks thin and someone who's skinny fat, yeah. if they have elevated fasting insulin levels and if they have the other hallmarks of metabolic syndrome, they're just completely over fat. And they've literally tried to store too much energy um, in the form of fat. And so you fill up your subcutaneous fat cells and then that spills over into visceral fat and ectopic fat. And then the reason your insulin's high all the time is because you have no place to put incoming energy. So all your cells are refusing fat energy. You've maybe uh, expanded your fat cells maximally and you, you have all this energy circulating in your bloodstream all the time. That could be triglycerides and glucose and you just don't have any place to put it. And this is just plain and simple energy toxicity Right. And you simply uh, develop energy toxicity if the amount of energy in your food is out of proportion to the satiety in that food, which is mostly protein and fiber and minerals. So uh, you strip the energy out of foods, carbs and fats, eat too many of those without enough satiety, which is protein and fiber and minerals, and then uh, you know do that for a couple of days, weeks, months, years. And next thing you know, you've tried to store too much energy in your body and you're still hungry, and then you have, you know, hyperinsulinemia, metabolic syndrome, prediabetes, diabetes, the whole spectrum of chronic degenerative diseases that I've labeled um, energy toxicity in the, in the book. Yeah, and it's interesting because you always, we talk about satiety, and it's such like an important thing, especially, you know, if, you, if you're eating the right foods and you're fasting, you know, you're gonna, if you're not going to eat your next meal for five, six, seven, eight hours, it's so important to have satiety. What would you say is the main hallmark behind, uh, you know, having satiety and, and where's, what kind of foods would you recommend? Well, so, so in, the, in the book, we kind of talk about the different forms of hungers, right? There's a, there's a nutrient hunger. Humans have a specific appetite for basically four things, protein, carbs, fat, and minerals, specifically sodium and calcium. So you really have specific targeted appetites for you know, the three macronutrients as well as minerals like sodium and calcium. And if you're not getting enough of any of these things, you're going to have this weird nutrient hunger where you just, you're just going to eat more until you get these things. Protein's probably one of the strongest um, hungers of all. And so if, if you didn't get enough protein, you're basically just going to eat and eat and eat until you do get enough protein. And that's why going out of your way to target things like protein and minerals right off the bat, I think it leads to a lot less downstream hunger. And then once you've kind of gotten that nutrient hunger out of the way, then you can be in a much better place to evaluate whether you have energy hunger or not. Like if you're actually hungry for energy calories, and then that can be further subdivided into, are you hungry for glucose because you're used to just eating carbs eight times a day, 300 grams every two hours, and your blood sugar is rising and falling over and over, and you can kind of feel this. And so you're just hungry for some, like some cornflakes versus actually needing more energy globally in your body, whether it's glucose or not, you know what I mean? So there are these different levels of, of hunger. And the goal is to try to uh, satisfy those in an order that sets you up for success. So like you target protein first and 
protein and minerals and protein and minerals and fiber because humans just eat a certain weight of food every day, no matter how many calories are in it. So you're eating foods, a lot of protein, fiber, water, minerals. You're making sure that you're not glucose dependent with some sort of either cyclical ketogenic diet or um, intermittent fasting or something. So you're not as glucose dependent as most people. And then you're a lot in a lot better place to tell if you're really hungry for just calories for just energy, right? You know, like, do I really need that MCT oil and that um, pre-workout dextrose, you know, or just some sort of pure energy thing? You're in a lot better place to know if you're hungry for that after you've satisfied all these other satieties. And we kind of lay that out in the book as, as well. Yeah, and I'm curious is when, as far as minerals, is that simply uh, adding just like a quality salt to your meals or how, how would you obtain uh, getting those minerals? Uh, so mostly you want to obtain them from real food. I'm not a huge supplement fan. I don't recommend any supplementation. I do put salt on my food, which is probably <clears throat> a sodium supplement, but I, I don't use a ton of salt and I'm actually more worried about uh, potassium and magnesium intakes in most people. And, and you really do want to get that from real food because we know from studies that it's superior to get these from real food than taking them in a supplement form. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say potassium. Where, where would you say a good place to get potassium from? Right. So potassium is in meat. Animal products have potassium in them. And you also get a lot of potassium in certain plant foods like your uh, avocado has a lot of potassium in it. And, uh, uh, you know, I I personally like low sugar fruit. I like um, green vegetables. I like fish and seafood, which is amazing. And those are my favorite sources. Sources. Okay. Um, So also, I, I, I noticed um, you talk a little bit about seasonal eating. Is that something that you do yourself and that you teach your clients? Well, uh, so what I like is some sort of carbohydrate periodization, mm. right? So uh, my theory is that, you know, humans maybe didn't have access to carbohydrate, you know, 24-7, 365. And we see um, animals living in the wild, they'll have a uh, a colder season or a rainier season or a darker season or a season with less sun. And then the foods they're eating are lower in carbohydrate. So like, you know, if you look at the, you know, if you look at your average gorilla or something, there's a rainy season where they're eating way more leaves and the protein percentage of their diet is a lot, a lot higher. And the carbohydrate content of the diet is a lot lower and they're literally getting thinner. They're, uh, they have um, higher lean mass to fat mass in their body composition. Um, and then they'll have a, a season, like a fruiting season where there's tons of fruit and they get tons of carbs and tons of sugar and the protein energy ratio of their diet falls and they gain a lot more body. Well, maybe not a lot, but they gain more body fat. And right. so there's this sort of seasonality based on the amount of energy your environment, which is direct reflection of the amount of solar energy hitting the earth in your environment in recent months. So there, there, there's, there's clearly some sort of period of time where humans have higher dietary energy 
and lower dietary energy from an evolutionary perspective. You know, like in the winter time, you're just not getting a lot of plant carbohydrates. The animals that you're killing and eating are a lot thinner because they themselves are looking for more dietary energy from the environment. So you're getting a, a lot higher protein to energy ratio. It's basically lower carb and lower fat. And then there are times, you know, autumn where you just have tons and tons of, you got animals are all really fat because they had a lot of, plant foods, maybe your herbivores, and they, so you're getting more dietary fat. You're also getting a lot more dietary carbs from plants. And so I like some sort of periodization. And so, and for myself, what I do is that I periodize carbs and I'm actually doing a cyclical ketogenic diet where I'm eating carbohydrate just kind of maybe once a day in the evening. Mm-hmm. And so what type like of carb, what type of carb do you prefer in the evening? Uh, fruit is definitely my favorite. So okay. I'm just eating completely unlimited amounts of green vegetables, any sort of non-starchy vegetable, um, unlimited amounts of low sugar fruit, even some, maybe some higher sugar fruit, uh, and some tubers possibly. Um, so when you say low sugar fruit, you're meaning like the, mainly the berries. Right, right. Uh, low sugar fruit would be cucumbers, tomatoes, peppers, olives, avocados, berries. Uh, higher sugar fruit would be like just like a banana or a citrus or an apple or something like that. Okay. And I'm basically eating, you know, unlimited amounts of low sugar fruit. And then maybe uh, not unlimited, but some, <laughs> you know, um, higher sugar fruit. Gotcha. And you, do you normally eat two meals a day or three or how do you sort of space your day out? Well, my favorite is a, is a 16, eight intermittent fast skipping breakfast. So okay. I basically eat lunch and dinner every day in roughly an eight hour window. And I might throw a snack in there somewhere, depending on how hungry I am or how active I am or how many calories I burn doing cardio or whatever. So it's like a two meals and a snack, maybe kind of thing in an eight hour window. It's just extremely typical for me. Usually the carbs are backloaded. So first meal, I might have no, hardly any, you know, net carbs. It, it might be a, right. just a egg scramble with some flavor veggies in there, like, you know, peppers and mushrooms and onions or something like that. And then in the evening, almost like dessert, I'll have more carbohydrate. I'll have berries or something something like that. Yeah. You know, uh, I used to have like this big salad in the middle of the day um, and put like, I was more of like a pescatarian for a while. And now I've sort of actually ever since the quarantine started, I I started going to meat and it's amazing, uh, you know, good grass fed, grass finished meat um, and gotten away from the plants. And it is amazing adding in all that. I needed that protein. I mean, I'm active. I've been lifting for over 20 years and And, uh, I just felt like my body was sort of falling behind a little bit. And, um, but the, the, the increase in protein is is a game changer and, and definitely, uh, I agree as far as, yeah, if if I'm going to have some carbs, I'll backload them because, um, I don't, you know, you you don't want to eat too close to when you go to sleep, but, um, but in the middle of the day, you want to sort of stay in, if you could stay in ketosis, right. And, 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 um, and have, you know, things that are higher in protein and maybe, you know, moderate fats in the middle of the day. I found that's effective for me. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like we're doing kind of a similar thing there. That's cool. Yeah. And, and I, and I agree. I, I, I mainly do the same type of window. Sometimes I I'll shrink it a little bit. Um, and, and depending on my activity level as well, do you, so you do cardio, do, do you do any resistance training as well? Yeah. I, so I, I love calisthenics. I'm like a calisthenics fanatic and 
I, I like to train daily. <laughs> What's that? Exercise 2.0, right? I noticed on your website. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know if you, uh, uh, well, in the book, we basically break down how to do a full body resistance, uh, calisthenics workout, push, pull legs, you know, just body weight uh, with almost no equipment, maybe something to pull on. And uh, I'm really into intensity, so I like maximizing intensity. I'm really into frequency, so I'm like doing a full body to failure daily or maybe every other day. Um, intensity maxed out, frequency pretty high, but the volume's tiny. So like I might only work out, <clears throat> you know, five minutes a, a day, maybe 15 at the most. Hmm. And it's just the intensity is really high. I'm trading intensity for for volume, basically. That's interesting that you mentioned that because that's like a common theme I'm getting interviewing um, people like yourself and Brad Kearns and some other people like um, it's not necessarily about like I, I'm, I was a little bit old school in a sense because I've lifted for a long time at, um, and you know an hour hour and a half in the gym and and like now these like micro workouts are, are becoming a big thing. And I also think, um, you know, like you have sort of like an at home, you could, you know, body weight workouts and stuff. I think that's becoming obviously really popular because gym, some gyms aren't even opening. Um, but, the, but how did you get into sort of like these micro workouts? And I, I and, um, I think it's great in the sense that, you know, it's, it's so easy to stay consistent that way. Right. 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 So, uh, the way I came up with this, so I, I realized that, you know, building muscle, you're, you're creating this functional tissue. It's an adaptation to a stress you put on your body. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, well, there's got to be an optimal frequency for this, right? And it's kind of like, it's sort of like calluses on your hands if you're digging ditches or um, pigmenting your skin if you're getting a tan, right? And then, you know, if you imagine that, you know, once uh, every two weeks, you just laid in the sun for like six hours and then just blistered yourself head to toe and then just didn't go out in the sun for the next two weeks versus, you know, like 15 minutes a day, uh, you know, which is going to give you the better right. tan. Or if you're, or if you just dug a hundred ditches all day, once a month till your hands were like bleeding versus like, okay, one ditch every day. Right. Uh, it, it seems like these people who do stuff daily get some really solid um, muscle growth, you know, like your gymnasts and your power lifters and people who have high frequency of training uh, have excellent results. And I think that there's so many benefits to high frequency. <clears throat> uh, you know, first of all, there's the practicing the movement, right? So let's say I just work out once a week and I do my handstand pushups. I mean, the first year of doing that once a week, I'm going to struggle just with my form and what it feels like and the mind muscle connection and just getting the movement pattern down. But if I'm doing that every day or even twice a day, I'm really going to progress with my, my form and with my technique and with my mind muscle connection and with my ability to maximally engage the muscles. And so there are these neuromuscular benefits you get to a higher frequency, right? So I, so I love this high frequency approach. Um, I think intensity is the most important factor when it comes to resistance exercise. Like if you have some pink weights and you do a thousand curls a day for the rest of your life, your bicep 
circumference is never, ever going to increase, right? Ever at all. So, so intensity just has to be top. It has to be number one. Mm-hmm. I like high frequency. And it makes sense to me if you're trying to get this functional adaptive uh, tissue buildup, you know what I mean? That's going to be basically an a-, a positive adaptation to, to stress. You, you want a, like a little bit on a really regular basis. And that's how I kind of came up with this like whole body daily or every other day yeah. um, with a very high intensity. It just, it feels natural to me. It makes a lot of sense to me. I see a lot more people going in this direction. It's a lot easier to do if you can do it at home with no equipment, because it's not realistic for most people to go to the gym, you know, every day or every other day and do a full body workout with all these, you know, the squat rack and the machines and the barbells and all this stuff. So that I'm just trying to replicate that with body weight. Um, it takes the excuses out, right? <laughs> yeah, it really does. I mean, and yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just gonna say, I mean, Hey, 10 minutes and you know, full body workout, you know, you really, you know, because the number one excuse is they don't have time. Well, <laughs> throw that out the door, you know? Right. And then in the book, we, we've, you know, we break it down into, there's just really these three basic movements you have to do with resistance and that's push, pull and legs. Right. And even that can be subdivided into little micro workouts that you can space out throughout the day. So like you could just drop to the floor right now and do a push routine that would take, you know, two minutes and just completely fry your pushing muscles. And then later, you know, when you're at the park or something, you can do your pulling uh, when you have something to hang from or pull on. And so we're just trying to just break exercise down into the absolute minimum effective dose. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all about uh, sustainability and tiny time commitments and tiny, um, uh, investments in money and uh, basically how can you get it done with the very least money, the very least time, <laughs> the very least motivation, no barriers to entry. And, uh, and you talk we, about intensity too. You know, uh, if you know you're doing something for only 10 minutes, it then it's like, okay, I'm just going to go full bore um, and be done. Like, you know, if, if you have an hour, an hour and a half to, to, to spare to work out, then you're going to be like, well, you know, maybe I don't need to go be that intense with my workouts, you know, but I think it's a mindset thing too. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, I watch people, you know, in the gym sometimes and I, I'm sure they could compress their hour of just wandering around into right. seven minutes, you know, like what we're doing in the book. If they were just really maxing out the intensity dial to 11, if, you know, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Have you, have you messed around with any uh, resistance bands? Cause that was something I've gotten into in, during the quarantine and I, I've, I've gotten some good benefits from that. Um, I've tried resistance bands. I'm not a huge fan <laughs> uh, for me. It, it doesn't really fit the, like the strength curve of your muscles and the resistance band. It doesn't really fit for me. Like if I'm doing <clears throat> pushups with a resistance band, you know, I want the highest resistance when the, like my pecs are maximally stretched, like in the down position. And that's when I get the lowest resistance from the band. And so I, I really don't like that. And I'm going to be honest, I'm not a huge resistance band. <laughs> to each his own, right? <laughs> you know, I've, right. Using, I've been using those, that X3 and, um, you mm-hmm. know, Dr. John and yeah, I will say I, I, yeah, I, I've gotten great results from it and I'm not, not sore and my, and it's a lot easier on my joints. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, you can do effective things like you mentioned, just using body weight as well. I just think it depends, you know, for me, I've been lifting weights for so long that like, this was sort of like just a sort of a, a new thing for me. And it's, it's nice to sort of mix it up and have something completely different, um, as well. So, well, we got exercise 2.0. So high intensity body weight exercises. We talked a little bit about, you know, diet, diet 2.0, right. Which is mainly, and I know this is in the book a lot to, um, increase protein and fiber, um, what do you say to, I know there's some advocates out there that don't really think that fiber is that necessary, is that necessary? Um, what is your thought around fi your fiber? Uh, so really, really big picture. Mm -hmm. You're going to get the best success when you have the very highest satiety per calorie, right? So like, <clears throat> you know, 91% of humans on earth are over fat and we have this just avalanche of obesity and diabetes and metabolic syndrome and chronic degenerative diseases. And let's say I can give you a food that's just this big, right? I'm, you know, you know, I'm holding my hands up and it's like a one inch cube. <laughs> and let's say you eat that and you get a whole day's worth of satiety and it's like 50 calories, right? It's a super, super insanely high satiety per calorie. Mm. Um, that is going to get you the very most success when it comes to fat loss and improving your body composition and reversing all of this stuff. So the number one most important factor in everybody's diet in the modern diabetes epidemic is satiety per calorie. You want the highest long-term satiety you can possibly get for the very fewest calories. You always get that with foods that are higher in protein and fiber and lower in carbs and fats. And so I know it's, it's super popular to just like be pure carnivore and be super extreme. Everyone's like, oh, I'm going to shave my carbs to zero. I'm going to shave my plant foods to zero. I'm going to just eat cubes of raw pork fat. That's going to be my whole diet forever, right? But the problem is you're leaving a lot of um, really low satiety per calorie foods on the table. Like, uh, you know, your green vegetables have just insanely high satiety per calorie. And uh, I mean, look at the Kevin Hall study that he recently did looking at, um, you know, a, plant, a low fat plant-based diet versus a low carb animal-based diet, right? And the, the plant-based people just automatically ate 500 less calories a day. Now, why did they do that? Is it because plants are magic? Is it because animals are bad? Is it because low fat is better than low carb? No, it's none of that stuff. It really just came down to energy density of the foods and satiety per calorie. The, the plant, the salad they were feeding those people had less than half the energy density of the like heavy cream and oil they were giving the keto side. So it, it turns out that green vegetables are just a really cheap and easy way to get extremely high satiety per calorie. And so I like that. And I think it's probably a mistake to completely eliminate it for, you know, unless you have a really, really good reason. Right. Like sometime, some type of like underlying issue, perhaps, right. you know? Um, so is there, a, is there a, uh, a food that you recommend that like your favorite food that you like to have, that's like a staple in your diet? Well, okay. So I love seafood, fish and seafood. Okay. Uh, I mean, if you want to, 
if you want to know like what is the very very best food you can get on this whole pe diet concept it's basically fish and seafood this is like a superfood uh fish has in, insanely high satiety per calorie uh insanely high nutrient density insanely high um, protein and minerals for the amount of uh, uh calories you're getting so that's off the charts so for me it's like wild caught salmon and um, wild caught seafood is just absolutely top of the sardines. ultimate foods pyramid. Sardines. Yes, you got it. Anything yeah. like that. Sardines, it's awesome. Um, uh, clams, mussels, oysters, sardines, any kind of wild caught fish and seafood. Amazing. Definitely top of the list for me. What about dairy? What are your thoughts on dairy? So dairy's interesting, right? Yeah. Dairy, you know, humans... Uh, we use technology to feed ourselves and we invented agriculture as a way to grow plants and get way more carbohydrates, increase energy in our diet. And we domesticated animals and we've figured out, Hey, if you feed an animal really well and keep it sheltered its whole life, it's a lot fatter and you can add a lot more energy to your diet just instantly. It's an instant win. And then when we invented the dairy agriculture, it's like, Oh, Hey, <laughs> You, you've, you've got this animal that the very highest energy density part of the animal is the milk it produces. It's very high in lactose or milk sugar and milk fat because it's trying to concentrate energy and pass it on to its offspring to turn a baby cow into a giant cow as fast as possible. So milk is actually an extremely high energy food. And it's actually very low in protein to energy ratio. The protein percentage of milk is fairly low. It has good protein in it, but what it really has is a lot of good carbs and fats, milk, sugar, and milk fat. So this like, is a, like, like, I'm sorry, like whole milk, you would say, right? Or raw, right, right. about raw milk, if you could get that. Raw milk. I'm, I'm talking about raw milk, whole yeah. milk, milk, milk. It's basically just one of the highest energy density foods you can get. It's one of the few foods in nature that have carbs and fats in it together, which we know drives overeating in most omnivore mammals. And so you're just going to eat the hell out of it and it's going to fatten you up really rapidly. And so this is a food that's very high quality nutrition, right? The carbs and the fats and the protein are designed for mammals. So we know it's the one food on earth that we know is actually designed for mammals to eat, but it's also designed for mammals to overeat and gain mass really rapidly on. So my thoughts on dairy are, what if we could take the good parts of dairy, but leave behind some of the energy because everybody's already energy toxic, right? Which is why I like any dairy that's lower in carbs or lower in fat or ideally lower in both. So fermented dairy is awesome because all the lactose is gone. Bacteria have consumed it all and left behind um, lactic acid or something like that. Um, I also like ultra filtered uh, dairy, something that's lower in fat, lower in carbs, lower in lactose, which a lot of people don't tolerate. So any kind of low carbon, low fat dairy I like. I like whey powder. I like um, like a fair life milk. I like uh, uh, cottage cheese. I like um, Greek yogurt is awesome. And if you're already too fat, you literally want a low fat version of these. You, if you're trying to lose fat, you want a low fat cottage cheese or a low fat 
plain Greek yogurt, some sort of fermented dairy that's going to be low carb and low fat, a lot lower energy. What are you left with? All the protein and the minerals and the nutrients. It's phenomenal. So I'm a big fan of dairy. And I also think this is another example of where processed foods, the whole concept of a food being processed, making it bad, I think is really not accurate because mm. humans, uh, we basically evolved to eat processed and cooked foods. Humans are cuisinivores, which means uh, we process and cook all our food to extract maximum nutrient density out of it. We've been doing that for millennia. You know, we uh, butcher an animal and then cook the meat and we get a much higher nutrient yield and nutrient density. And we take plant foods and we'll ferment them, we'll soak them, we'll sprout them, we'll crush them, we'll grind them. We're doing all this processing to maximize nutrient density and nutrient absorption, and nutrient yield. And so cooking and processing is essential to what made us human. That's where we traded off these giant brains and these fairly small GI tracts. And you have to do that to have optimum success as a homo sapien. So I actually like things like processed dairy because I think this is where one place where technology and food processing has increased nutrient density versus some other areas where food processing has decreased nutrient density. That's where we just suck all the carbs and fats out of the food and just add empty calorie energy. That's your sugar, your flour, and your oil. We right. took a food, we stripped out all the car hydrocarbons and carbohydrates, basically just the pure chains of carbon, high energy bonds, and now you've got like cookies and shortbread and cakes and stuff. It's just basically sugar, flour, oil, pure energy with none of the satiety. Right. Actually, that led right into my next question because we're talking about things to eat and then things to not eat. What would you say would be the biggest things? Obviously, you just sort of said them, but to not to, to avoid because um, sometimes that's easier for people. If you just eliminate the things that you don't want to eat, um, it can sort of you know, that's, it could be a big list, but it can help sort of simplify things as far as diet is concerned. Right, right, right. So, so in this whole PE diet concept, what we're really down on is refined carbs and refined fats. Okay. So, you know, a lot of people are afraid of carbs. And so they'll say, well, I'm not going to eat a, an apple because that's carbs and I'm not going to eat uh, fruit because that's carbs. And I'm not going to eat certain you know, like potato because that's carbs. I think that's a wrong approach because those are actually low carb carbs. All of those carbs, your fruit and your apples and your potatoes, they have so much fiber and water and um, they're, they're, the, the energy density is so low. The amount of actual carb you get is so low that it's not that big a deal. What you really want to be afraid of is your high carb carbs. That's your refined carbs. That's your sugar and your flour. The amount of actual carbohydrate you're getting per unit of food weight or volume or however you want to measure it is off the charts with these refined ones. So the carbs you want to be afraid of are refined carbs. You want to be afraid of your high carb carbs, not your low carb carbs, which is like, your fruit and your tubers. Same thing with fat. Like everyone's like, Oh, I'm not going to eat an egg or an avocado or a piece of meat because that's way too much fat. Well, these foods have so much protein and minerals and water and other stuff in them that they're actually low fat fats. The fats you need to be afraid of are the refined fats like your butter and your heavy cream and your oil. And if you actually look at how many grams you're getting for the unit of food, it's just ridiculously high. So 
so, you know, carbs and fats, you have to look at the energy density and how refined it is. And you have to stay away from the high fat fats, which are the refined concentrated um, fats that are low in protein and water and mineral. And that's your, you know, all your fine stuff, your, your oil, your butter, your heavy cream. What do you like and to cook what, with then? Sorry to interrupt, but what do you like to cook with then? I like to cook with uh, uh, avocado oil. I do okay. actually cook with some sort of butter or oil. I just try to keep the quantities low. Mm -hmm. If you're really, really getting aggressive with shaving down fat grams, I like an avocado oil spray or something like that. Um, you know, a nonstick pan and avocado oil spray, spray, you don't have to cook with a ton of fat. I do recommend, you know, cooking a lot of foods with, a, with some fat. <clears throat> and you never want to go to zero on any of these macros. Right. But you definitely don't have to deep fry everything in soybean oil and, you know, just try to eat a whole ton of that. That's so, yeah, I, I do think that, um, you know, all of this is again on a U shaped curve where you don't want to shave your fat to zero for sure, but you want to be mindful of these high fat fats, like your refined fats. Right. Which seems to be flooding the market. Um, like adding fats to everything. Um, and I think you've got to sort of find that balance. And um, what about like insulin spikes, you know, glucose spikes? I was just, I just wore a CGM uh, for a couple of weeks just to see how foods impacted my blood sugar. And so you talk about carbs and things like potatoes and things like that. Um, is that something that you look into with your clients or for yourself? Yeah. And, and unfortunately, there's a, there's a really, bad trend I see out there right now. So everyone's got a CGM, right? I'm wearing a CGM. You're wearing a CGM. All my patients have CGMs mm -hmm. and we're all just fetishizing the perfectly flat CGM, right? It's like, oh, wow. Um, look, I ate an apple and I got a big spike and that's why I'm never going to eat an apple again. Instead, I'm just going to eat three pounds of macadamia nuts and you don't, and you get this perfectly flat Thing. But what you don't see is the next day, the baseline just went up a little bit. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So 24 hours a day, your blood sugar is two points higher than it was uh, because of all the fat that you ate. And what people don't get is that the fatter you are, the higher your baseline sugar is all the time. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So if I just eat nothing but butter, I will never get a spike on my CGM. But... I will be hungry. I will eat more calories. I will basically end up being fatter. The, the protein energy ratio of my body is going to go down. And then my baseline, my basal insulin, my basal glucose, my A1C, everything's going to creep up a little bit. I'll have slightly higher triglycerides, blood sugar, insulin, glucose, A1C, anything you can measure. I'll never see a spike. Oh, the flattest CGM curve you've ever seen. I'll be posting it on Instagram. I'll be like, look at that. Look at, look at all these morons eating an apple because they got this spike. And then the reality is these spikes don't really matter, right? When I do high-intensity exercise, I can get a huge spike in glucose, a diabetic spike. Does that mean that I should never exercise? Hell no. I mean, like exercise does all this bad stuff to you. It's very inflammatory. It tears your muscles, raises inflammation, spikes your blood sugar, um, it dumps all this glycogen from your liver. It does all this stuff that could be thought of as bad, you know, and, and in the end, you're actually way better off. It makes you way, way better. And so I, I don't want anyone to eat to their glucometer and to be just terrified of these spikes.
diabetics. It's different if you're a type one diabetic. Now, if you're a type one diabetic, because we don't have an artificial pancreas yet that dumps insulin out right next to your liver where it's supposed to, and instead you're having to inject insulin way out in the periphery under your skin, there's no good way to deal with carbs. So your type one diabetics, yes, should be on the lowest carb diet they can stand. But for anybody with a, with a functioning pancreas, you really shouldn't be afraid of these spikes. You shouldn't be completely terrified of them. You, I almost cringe when people slap a CGM on mm-hmm. because it's gonna drive them to make (laughs) it's good to drive them crazy and they're going to make dietary choices that do not necessarily give them the highest satiety per calorie you know the interesting thing i learned i had it on for two weeks and um it was i i liked it i think that it could drive you a little bit crazy i i did notice that i was more aware of of like uh, inputting the foods that i had and 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 how that affected me but um like you said, it's more about sort of that average of what your insulin is throughout the day. Cause you know, as long, if you get spikes, that's fine. As long as it comes back to the norm. Right. Right. I'm more worried about people's basal than their spikes. To be yeah. honest, I really am. Um, is there anything else that you, any other markers that you look at um, for individuals other than perhaps, you know, obviously fasting insulin, anything else? Uh, I mean, my, my favorite thing out there is waist circumference. Like this is just a amazing <clears throat> measurement. I mean, it tracks almost perfectly linearly with fasting insulin and overall insulin sensitivity and uh, waist circumference or even better yet a waist to height ratio mm. is a, a, just a phenomenal marker of how healthy you are metabolically. And to me, it's so simple. much more important than weight. Yeah, it's very simple. simple. It's free. Right. So is that because of the visceral fat? Just Right. Yeah. Yeah, the, the more visceral fat you're going to have, the just the bigger your waist circumference right at the belly button is going to be. And that's, that's why it remains a pretty good metric, even in people who are visibly fairly lean and quote unquote skinny fat. So mm-hmm. I love waist circumference. I could probably replace half the labs I ever do with just a simple waist circumference. I mean, the, these things are really, um, I mean, just basically how you look in the mirror, your waist circumference, I think it's more important than weight by a mile. I agree. I mean, how you feel, it's like the whole BMI thing is just junk. I mean, BMI is, it's all, it's helpful on a population level and on an individual level, it's just trash. It's total trash. Yeah. Um, yeah. How you feel, how you look. I mean, I weigh, I weigh 170, but like you wouldn't, you know, you, you might guess that, Oh, you weigh 150, but why weigh 170? Cause you know, a lot of it's muscle. Like you just mm-hmm. can't tell. I think that's, you know, that that's obviously a, a, a good thing just to, ha- you know, how you look, how you feel and waist cr- circumference is a big deal. Um, I wanted to ask you a few more questions. We've hit on a lot of good stuff. Um, who's your biggest influence in your life and, um, and how, and how did they, sort of influence you to get you into where you're at oh wow well okay in this whole like diet and exercise nutrition realm big influences uh mark sisson i love his approach you know looking at everything through an ancestral lens makes a lot of sense to me Mm -hmm. uh when it comes to exercise uh dr doug mcguff super awesome guy really just body by science amazing book really eye-opener for me um Yeah. yeah those are probably some of my bigger um, diet and exercise 
influences right there. Yeah, I've heard so many great things about Mark Sisson. Uh, you're not the first person to say that they helped influence uh, their their trajectory in, in health. Um, and then a, a question that I ask all my guests is, what would be, and it's a bit of a loaded question, but one tip uh, for individuals to help get their body back to what it once was, because I just find this, you know, it's a common theme. You get into your even 30s or 40s or 50s and 60s, and you're like, God, 10 years go by. What, what, what the heck happened? <laughs> Uh, what would be, you know, one tip you'd give to that individual to help get their body back to what it once was? Oh, wow. Uh, just if you could only do one thing mm -hmm. to maximally improve your body composition, it would be replace all your carbs with protein. Yeah. I like if that, I, man. if I could only give everybody <laughs> one thing to do, it's replace your carbs with protein then, and you're done. That's basically just hitting the wind button. That's the finish line right there in, in one, in one step pretty much. You know, and I like that because I'm always, I'm all, I'm all about keeping things simple and um, you know, we got the new year coming up. So that would be a great thing just to go into the new year and just replace all your, your carbs with a high quality protein. Right. Right. Awesome. Well, where would be a great place for people to find you? I knew, I know you obviously with your book, the PE diet, um, what's your website? Uh, well, I have a website, uh, burn fat, not sugar.com. Okay. Uh, but probably my best, uh, my best source of information is the book, the PE diet, and you can buy it at the PE diet.com or it's pretty much, uh, in, in most, you know, it's on Amazon and, uh, Barnes and Noble and all these bookstores. But yeah, the pediet.com is a good place to pick up the book. That's probably my best work so far. Yeah. And, uh, you know, personally, I'm on Twitter at Ted Naiman and I'm on all the socials um, with that handle. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. This was a lot of knowledge packed in. So I appreciate you coming on, Dr. Ted. Oh, thanks for having me. All right. Well, have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.